Please open your Bibles, if you've brought them today, to John chapter 4. I'd like us to spend some time today considering Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, this conversation of Jesus with the Samaritan woman takes up a number of verses. And we're probably not going to get through all of them today, but at least we will make a start. That begins, uh, please follow along with me, uh, beginning right at verse 1 of John chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then comes he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus says unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy food. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, who am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. The woman says unto him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From where then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman says unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. Jesus says unto her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. Thou saidst, Truly. The woman says unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where man ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah comes, 
who is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus says unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Uh, Let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you for this portion from the Gospel of John. And I pray that you'd open our eyes that we may understand your scripture and the truths that you have for us here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In John 4, we have the account of Jesus' conversation with a woman of Samaria. Uh, We will look at this in four parts, Lord willing. John MacArthur has a neat little outline for the first 26 verses here. He talks about the circumstances, how Jesus and the woman met, and then the contact, how he, come to ha- he, how he came to have this contact, just by asking for a drink of water. Then thirdly, the conviction that was grown in her heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And la- then lastly, what the passage teaches us about the, the doctrine of Christ, a doctrine that even the Samaritans believed in, uh, just based on the books of Moses. And Jesus uses the books of Moses to lead her to faith in himself. First of all, we have the circumstances in verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, um, the opposition to Christ in Jerusalem was growing especially now that Jesus had more followers following him than John the Baptist had. The Pharisees were taking note of that, and they were turning up the heat. Uh, You recall what happened in in the first three three chapters of John. In John 3, you have Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee. And I think Nicodemus may have been prompted to rush out to go and see if he can... uh, meet with Jesus to talk about things that were a burden of his heart. And they met in John chapter 3. What may have prompted Nicodemus to so seek out Jesus may have been what took place in John chapter 2, and that is Jesus coming to the temple and just cleaning it out for the second time in his three-year ministry. So Jesus has certainly gotten the attention of at least the Pharisees in uh, the southern part of Israel, or Judah. Verse 3, Jesus now leaves Judea, or Judah, and departs again northward to Galilee. And he did not take the normal route that um, many would take, because between Judah in the south and Galilee in the north, you know what you have? You have the land of the Samaritans. You have Samaria. And Jews would not be caught going through Samaria. They would knock the dust of Samaria off their sandals. And the Samaritans felt likewise towards the Jews, whether from Galilee to the north or Judah in the south. But he needed to go through Samaria this day in verse 4. It's just not the normal path. The normal path for uh, people wanting to go from the northern part of Israel to the southern part would be to cross over the Jordan and go on the east side of the Jordan River 
up and down, north and south, to travel in Israel. Because of the supposed great religious differences, that area was avoided. These were actually because of personal prejudices rather than any genuine differences in the scriptures. Actual doctrinal differences can be discussed and evaluated fairly. And Jesus will find, we will find later in our text, does discuss, for instance, the doctrine of worship with the Samaritan woman. Samaritans believed, oh, worship God at Mount Gerizim when uh, the people of Judah, Israel, would say, no, we worship him in the temple in Jerusalem. So they had some great differences. The circumstances of my hearing and believing the gospel was my fall 1975 semester at the University of Northern Iowa. Like the Samaritan woman, I didn't know until studying for this this message today that I had this in common with the Samaritan woman. But it's this. I had some basic understandings of Scripture that were really not scriptural. And also, like the Samaritan woman, I had been taught and believed some things that were not really found in the Scripture. So, verse 5. Jesus comes to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And this is at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Here's Sychar, here's Gerizim, and here's their temple on the mountain. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about 12 noon. We come to part two, the contact, in verses 7 through 15. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And I think he may have said, please, but that's not in my translation. But he politely says, would you give me a drink? Here is the contact. Nothing unusual about this request for a drink. However, um, I first came in contact with the gospel through one of my classes at the University of Northern Iowa. I was interested in dating a gal in one of my classes named Sandy. I was a Roman Catholic. She was a Baptist. And you know what happened? Now I'm a Baptist. That's the influence that one person can have on another. I had been around Bible-believing Christians for about four years, and I was asking them at every opportunity these questions I had about my own Roman Catholic faith. Uh, What do you believe as a Baptist about where Christ says to Peter, somewhere in the Gospels, he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. So that's got to be the foundation of the church, Peter. Or another Roman Catholic text, Whosoever sins you remit or forgive, they are forgiven taken from Easter Sunday evening in the upper room when Jesus appeared behind locked doors in the upper room, speaking not to the disciples, not to the eleven. They were not all there. Uh, Thomas was absent. And Luke's account tells us there were others present, including women, including a couple of people who'd just come from Emmaus. And Jesus appears and speaks about the forgiveness of sins to this 
body of believers in general. And the third Roman Catholic text that my friend Sandy had a different view on was from James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. And that has been wrested out of its context. It's talking about what we say about what we believe. It's not talking about a genuine faith without works. A genuine faith cannot lack works. Um, well, we're not in James chapter 2 today. We're in um, John chapter 4. So continuing on the contact. So I asked my friend Sandy all my Roman Catholic questions. And I did this for a week and a half and she led me to Christ. Verse 9. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Prejudice. Quite a reaction for having just been asked for a drink of water. What are you asking me for? It's like, uh, and we still have the same prejudices today. Um, More and more that's becoming an issue across our culture. It's quite a reaction to just being asked for a drink of water. Albert Barnes explains this this way. The Jews, after their return from Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., set about to rebuild their temple. The Samaritans offered to aid them. The Jews, however, rejected their offer. I don't know if that was justified or not, but that's where this whole conflict began between Jews and Samaritans. The consequence was that a state of bitter animosity arose between them and the Jews. While Nehemiah was engaged in building the walls of Jerusalem in the mid-5th century B.C., the Samaritans used every art to thwart him in his undertaking. That's found in Nehemiah chapter 6. And point three from Barnes, the Samaritans at length obtained leave, permission from the Persian monarch to build a temple for themselves on Mount Gerizim in about 450 B.C. So they finally had their table, temple, and Israel had its temple. And so it's dueling religion within the same country. Such was the cause of the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, or the grace, the favor of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Water is a metaphor for eternal life. And the Old Testament had something to say about water and wells of salvation. Isaiah 12.3 Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And Zechariah 13.1 In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. 
And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, possibly 100 feet deep. Where then do you get that living water? She was not understanding the figure of speech that Jesus was using. Jesus was speaking of rivers of living water that refresh the soul. It is interesting to me that Samaritans accepted the books of Moses as scripture. So was she possibly thinking of Genesis chapter 3? Remember what Genesis chapter 3 says. It spoke of a tree of life. You eat of that and you live forever. If one would eat from the tree of life, he would live forever. But Adam and Eve were banished from that tree. In scripture, there's both a river of life and a tree of life. Revelation 22.1 And he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And verse 2, In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, back in John chapter 4, the woman asked in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Oh, do you want to be drinking from a well that livestock drink from? I'm not sure. Albert Barnes again has this to say, How ready sinners are to misunderstand the words of Christ and to pervert the doctrines of religion. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. They will continually, man is continually hungering and thirsting for things other than what satisfies. He can find no lasting satisfaction. Verse 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The grace of Christ is as cold waters to a thirsty soul. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 7.38 He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, Are you satisfied with life? Consider the claims of Christ. The woman says to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. The lost are quick to jump at easy believism. Many are naive and undiscerning. Many have only a shallow understanding of the scriptures. Possibly, this may be the end of the conversation right here. Possibly, she's ready to return home at this point with her literal water that she can drink. Uh, Was she thinking of Genesis 3 at all? It spoke of a tree of life, eating and living forever. Was she even making that connection? 
He's talking about drinking for eternal life. I've heard about, in my own scriptures, eating for eternal life. But I'm just going to dismiss this guy? No, that's not what she does. Her, her attitude begins to change right here. Um, talking about living water and everlasting life. I believe that at this point in the narrative, her genuine interest has peaked. She may not have understood what Jesus meant by living water, but she now senses that she wants to hear more of what Jesus is saying. She could have just said, no, no thanks, i got to get this water home. But she keeps on talking. Her trust in Jesus is beginning. There are subtle nuances and levels of meaning that are beginning to shift. We can tell by Jesus' next statement of two commands and by her response. We cannot predict how anyone is going to react or respond to hearing the gospel. This may be read as an insincere, over-the-top statement. Oh, give me this water, she says. And maybe as soon as the, the words leave her mouth, she's going, now wait a minute, Genesis chapter 3, um, possibly she may have had some slight inkling that there might actually be something to what this guy, Jesus, was saying. She may have just been warming up to conversing with Jesus and sincerely desired such a special water, whatever that meant. This starts to become more evident with her next statement. We come to part three, the conviction, verses 16 through 19. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. Isn't that kind of a strange thing to say as you've been talking about water and water that will last forever? Um, Go call your husband. Well, and he gives two commands. Go get your husband and come here. Wouldn't it be so easy for her at that point to say, uh, no thank you, uh, goodbye. Possibly, Christ asked her to go for her husband for her proper religious instruction alongside of her husband. He may have asked this to uncover her sinful lifestyle. And she remains interested in his words. Is that what you'd expect from someone who's not understanding you? You know, the first opportunity they have to leave, they would take it. But she persists. Do you see the difference between verses 15 and 17? Let's notice that. Verse 15 says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. And verse 17, The woman answered and said, I have no husband, actually, really, truthfully. Jesus says to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. Um... She begins to speak the truth. She says, uh, I don't have a husband. So there's a difference. There's a genuine admission of the truth, to some degree, of her sinfulness. She says, I don't really have a husband. Again, I'm reminded of my own experience of confrontation and conviction regarding my Roman Catholicism. I had never heard anyone speak truth like what I was hearing from my friend Sandy. True gospel preaching challenges and corrects religious people's false understandings. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, 
I have no husband. She is speaking the truth, and Jesus acknowledges this. She has been misunderstanding the words of Jesus. Right here, many commentators misunderstand her words. She was telling the truth. Jesus said so immediately. This was the first breakthrough in the conversation. Her first beginning to speak from her heart without spiritual games. She was right here beginning to admit her sin. Jesus continues in verse 18. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Uh, Again, he's saying you're speaking truth, as he said in verse 17. Positive reinforcement there. Being God, Jesus knew all about the Samaritan woman's sinful lifestyle. We do not have such knowledge. Did you know that? I think we know that. But we have the scriptures, which is sufficient to show anyone their sin and how far short they fall of the glory of God and His righteousness. And again, I learned from my friend Sandy through a conversation of a week and a half that contrary to my own church's teaching, any and all sin, even the most minor, was enough to condemn me to hell. Conviction of sin comes when believers kindly confront people with their lack of scriptural understanding through the use of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Verse 19, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I do not read this as an attempt at flattery. She is taking Jesus seriously. This contrasts with the attitude of the super-religious Pharisee Nicodemus in the previous chapter. As I could immediately sense with my friend Sandy, by the way she spoke of God and His Word, I kept on saying to myself, this lady really knows God. This lady, just by the way she speaks of Him, she knows God. And I I got my religious faith in my Catholic church that I'm finding is not really true to the Bible. I was daily becoming more convinced that I did not really know God. Point four, the Christ, verses 20 through 26. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. The Samaritan woman is introduced to the first century debate of the one true temple. The Jews have one in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans have theirs in Mount Gerizim. She's freely testing religious views, just polar opposites in their views of temple worship. She believes that Jesus will give her questions a fair hearing, and she is not obstinately opposing Jesus anymore. So Jesus starts to tell her the truth about worship, and she hears him out with a teachable spirit. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Ah, these are hard words to a Samaritans. Jesus had the same point with Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 11. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Jesus tells the woman, you do not know what you worship. He is not subtle here, but she can handle the truth. She is teachable. I received much the same 
hard reality about my Roman Catholic Church. I heard answers to my questions about Peter as the foundation of the rock and the other passages I mentioned earlier. These are all plain, non-mysterious, black and white issues. The truth can easily be made known on these things. But many people dodge such debates rather than honestly seeking the truth. As with the Samaritan woman, Jesus had begun with Nicodemus with figurative language. And like the Samaritan woman, Nicodemus did not initially understand Jesus' words. But the Samaritan woman does not dig her heels in here at the true words against her false religion. Again and again, the words of Jesus ring true. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. It's interesting what she tells the other Samaritans of Christ later on in verse 29. She says, Come see a man who told me, all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Duh. The Samaritans believed only the first five books of Moses. The coming of Messiah is spoken of in the first five books of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22. Here the Samaritan woman believes in Christ, basing her belief in Christ on Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. And finally in verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus reveals himself as her Messiah. In conclusion, Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to save his people from their sin. Do you know him today? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this clear passage in John chapter 4. I pray that you continue to open the eyes of our understanding as we continue to delve into the Gospel of John. Thank you for everyone who's come out today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.